I didn't wear black because it's slimming. I wore black in mourning of the hour of sleep that I lost <laughs> last night. Ah, I wake up this morning, you know, my wife and I are in, in the bathroom. We're all getting ready, and I, and, and I go, I got this song stuck in my head. I go, were you singing this thing? She saw it, and I'm like, Caribbean queen. <laughs> Somebody even knows who it is. So, yeah, exactly. And, and she's all no, and we have no idea where it came from, right? And maybe it's always in my head that early. I just don't know because I'm not awake for it. So, I don't. It's weird. Anyway, uh, we did uh, this, the men's beer tasting yesterday. It was a whole lot of fun. Hope you're able to make it. Apparently, a lot of you did. It's like we do all these men's activities, 10 guys show up. We do the beer tasting, it's like 22 guys show up. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Way to go, us. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live, and Uversion brings us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get all the sermon notes and questions and all the verses that go along with it. Now, uh, as they were saying, uh, baptisms are next week. The weather report right now says that it's supposed to rain Friday afternoon, Saturday, and Sunday morning. If that is the case, we did put them on the day we did so we could move them a week if we needed to. So hopefully you're on our email update list. If not, go to ourelement.org. You can do that right now if you want to, too. Sign up for the email update. It comes out once a week. It's really short. We don't bombard you with spam, usually. So uh, you can sign up for that, and on Wednesday we'll probably let you know better, because hopefully as we get closer to the weekend we'll know a little bit better about what that looks like. So, But then you never know. I mean, seriously, Jim Byrne used to be like, hey, it's going to be sunny this week, and it was raining the next day. And I call up my friend Donald who works at the station. I'm like, seriously, what's up with Jim Byrne? You tell him he was so off. And he goes, that's why we call it Acts of God. And I go, okay, I'm good with that. <laughs> why don't you guys stand me reading the God's Word? This is Romans 3, uh, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning we would understand your great grace in rescuing your people, that we would live as those who you have given great grace to, so that you'd be honored in our lives and we would lift you up and we would understand that without you we would be completely lost. Amen. Have a seat. So we are going through the book of Genesis. We thought it would be easy to give you a book of the Bible you could actually find. Let me tell you to open it. That's so nice. Seriously, last service, everybody's asleep. They're like, and I go, really, the first joke and nothing. Wonderful. This is great. You can open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be at. So far, we've seen that God creates everything and makes it very, <clears throat> very good. He places man in the middle of this, and man just messes everything up like we tend to do a lot. But God comes, and he offers redemption to his people. Uh, we're covering the first sins that were ever committed. We have many since then, just letting you know, but... This is uh, the first one's ever committed. And so first week we talked about Genesis. We said, what is sin? And I told you that sin is many things. Sin is number one, the disruption of God's peace, the disruption of shalom. This is the peace and rightness of what God created. Peace with God, peace with each other, peace with creation, even peace with ourselves. Sin is the ways we disrupt what God intends for us to have in his peace, in his shalom, that we have violated God's peace. The second thing is sin is rebellion, where we don't like the way God has actually set things up. So we, we rebel against God's order of things, how he said things are supposed to be. We rebel against the world, the way it was made, and so destroy it in the process. Uh, thirdly, sin is participation in the way of death. We try and steer things in the opposite direction of what God has called us to. Uh, this is we bring great separation into what God has wrought. And lastly, sin is missing the mark. It's actually an archery term where you have a, this little target you're aiming at and you miss it. So that's what sin is missing the mark. Now, Augustine 
once said that all sin is pride. It all stems from pride. And you see that very clearly in the first sins that were committed. Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent comes. He asks the woman a first question in human history, and he says, did God actually say? Did God really tell you this? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The pitch to the woman is pride. Did God tell you what to eat and what not to eat? Where is your freedom? What a mean God. You know what you want better than what God knows what you want. You know your desires. You know your feelings. You need to go get what you want. He tempts her with pride. God doesn't want you to do this because you'll like it. And God doesn't want you to be fulfilled. This is like our culture. Everything tries to convince us that God is not right and that God is not so good. We are constantly told, go get what God hasn't yet given you. Whether it's sex, whether it's happiness in a way that dishonors God, whether it's ill-gotten money, the lie to us is you know what you want, you know what you need, why should anybody stop you from getting it? That's pride. It's what our culture is based on. The woman tells the serpent that God told them not to eat from certain trees or they will die. But he responds in verse 4, you will not surely die. Did God actually tell you you would die? Really? Uh, You will not actually die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Literally, this is you can be God. You can determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. You will be God. We're on the backside of the lie. Anybody feel like God? No. All right. Just checking. Not me. If you do, wonderful for you. Uh, Adam and Eve were already made in God's likeness. They already were like him. The, The truth is, the more we think we are God, the further away from God we become. I mean, why do so many rock stars and movie stars live lives that are completely deplorable? Because we treat them like they are gods. We let them get away with everything. CeeLo Green, he's on like one of the biggest shows in the country, like The the Voice. And yet he brags about taking ecstasy. You know, sad story, Amy Winehouse, right? She, She dies, but I think a lot of it is due to the people who kept supporting her in those habits. Kurt Cobain, Lady Gaga. If you saw any of these people walking down the street, you would not go, oh, there's someone I should let watch my kid, right? You would never think that. Well, hopefully you wouldn't, or you're just crazy, all right? Hopefully you wouldn't think, oh, that person should, should totally watch my kids. And yet what you do is you give these kids music, and they listen to these things, and they follow the examples of these people, and it's like, what are we doing? We treat these people like gods, like they're, like they're above everything, and they get away with And yet most parents actually treat their kids the exact same way. They treat their children like gods. It's like everything they want, they give. Oh, you're crying, what do you want? You want this, you want this, you want this. Oh, how can I make you happy? What, what do I give you? Hey, there, there are some kids, 20, 25 years old, still living in their parents' homes, doing everything their parents tell them not to do. You know what you need to do? You need to follow God's example and kick them out of the garden. Put a little flaming sword in front of your house. Be like, I'm guarding the house just like God. I'm just following a good example. Bam. You guys ever hear this story about called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti? Milton Rokich, uh, he's a psychologist who wrote this book a while ago called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. In it, he details three mental patients, Leon, Joseph, and Clyde, true story, I'm not making this up, who all thought that they, they were the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the whole world evolves around them. And so it details his attempts to get them just to be Leon, Joseph, and Clyde and not Jesus. And after years of help, he finds that they couldn't bear to live their lives if they weren't who they thought they were. Rokic says this. He says, they are very rational with all aspects of life, but they would hold on to messianic delusions even though they are grotesque, ego-defensive distortions of reality. So Rokic takes these guys, puts them in the same room for two years. They worked, ate, had grouped together to see if it would diminish this Messiah delusion. It's like the Messiah 12-step program. This is what you do. You put them in the room together, apparently. One conversation goes like this. I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm on a mission I was sent to save the earth. 
And Rokich would say, well, who told you? He said, God told me that. And the other patients would go, I didn't tell you any such thing. <laughs> right? Now, now, true story. Now, we laugh at this, right? But the very delusion they held to was what cut them off from real life. I mean, to stop being the Messiah was terrifying, but it could have meant their salvation. Like it's ours. We don't have to hold everything in our hands. We don't have to be in control of everything. We can trust God to be God. We don't have to be. Because if you want to believe you're the Messiah, you've got to shut out all evidence to the contrary. All of it. You have to live in a tiny little world where there's only room for one person, and that's you. And your world could be so much bigger and so much broader if you're simply willing to acknowledge God to be God. See, the truth is that God does not work for us. We do not own God. God's whole world is not here to glorify us. The most important thing to God is not us. The most important thing to God is his glory. And out of that comes his love for his people, his rescue and redemption of mankind. Now, we'll cover more of that when we get to Noah because it's very important when all that stuff happens with Noah. But suffice it to say that God is a God who has revealed himself as a father to his people, and we need to trust what our dad tells us. He knows what is right. He knows what is good. Like when I was growing up, my dad would take me out fishing. He'd say things like, don't stand so close to the water when you're on the pier. Right. You're smart, old guy. I'd go stand and be fishing. Boom, I'm in the water. And then it's like I'm a quarter mile out in the water, and my dad's on top of the pier talking to somebody. The guy's like, hey, look at that kid in the water. My dad's like, that's my kid. You know, he goes and jumps in and has to save me. My mom would say things like, don't go on the roof, especially when we're not home. I climb up on the roof, hang out. I fell off the roof and slanted on my head. Yes, that's what happened. Okay, and... Parents try to protect our life. It's why they tell us things. And yet we are just like Adam and Eve and we think God is not so good and Satan's not so bad and we know what we want better than what God says. In Genesis it tells you both the man and the woman eat the fruit. The woman first, then she gives them to her husband. In verse 6 it says she also gave them to her husband who was with her and he ate. So where was he? He was with her. What was he doing? Nothing. I told you last week it should have been like talking snake, kick it in the head, fling it around, and throw it. Just get rid of the freaking talking snake because it's just weird. But he doesn't. He doesn't protect his wife. God made men to lead their family, have responsibility for their family. And as soon as they sin, they realize they're naked. They sew fig leaves together to cover their baby-making parts, and they run away from God. So chapter 3, verse 8, this is where we left off last week, and this is where we go. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they're separated from life. God comes walking in the garden. They try to hide from him. This is really dumb. This is why I think people who sin a lot get caught all the time. Because we're not so bright when we sin. It's like, oh my goodness, let's hide behind a tree. The omniscient God of the universe will not find us hiding behind a tree. Yeah, not, not so bright. Okay, verse uh, 9. Wait, where am I at? Oh, yeah, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is important because God called to who? The man. It's simple answer. God called to the man. Who sinned first? The woman. And yet God comes and calls to the man. This is what when Scripture is called headship and responsibility. Guys, God has given you headship and responsibility. It was Adam's job to teach his wife about the things that God had said. A lot of men are like, Well, it's not my fault. Well, it's your responsibility. You know, if a mess comes in, who's supposed to fix it? You are. Maybe things are just crazy in your house. Maybe, maybe your wife's crazy. She's like a gossip and a terror. It's still your responsibility. Maybe your kids are midget demons. Okay? It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility. Maybe your home's a mess. It's your responsibility. See, God calls men to love their families enough to fix the messes that come into our homes. You're to know Scripture, love God. And when I say no Scripture, you don't have to like lead a Bible study. You don't have to be a Bible scholar, but you should be reading your Bible every single day. 
A man is supposed to fix the messes in his families. Man was meant to insert himself between Satan and his family. Adam should have been crying out to God, grabbed his wife, got on his knees. God, we did this thing. And yet God had to go searching for man. But that's the beauty of the gospel. That is the good news, that God came looking because God is on a rescue mission for his people. And God says, where are you? And this is important because Adam, this make Adam think, yeah, where, where am I? It's not that God didn't know. It's make Adam think, what, where am I now? What have I done? What, what's going on with this? Verse 10, and he said, that's the man, I heard the sound of you walking, uh, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, this is a plausible excuse in Adam's mind. Oh, you know, I was naked. You don't want to see this running around. So I figured I'd hide behind this tree over here and, and it'd all be good. Verse 11, he said, that's God. Who told you you were naked? Oh, oh, I, oh, such a bad excuse. I should have thought that one out. You ever watch like cops? All the time, right? They think these are brilliant excuses. Not so much. I can imagine half these people like the next day, like watching this back on video going, I cannot believe I just said that. You know, what? Why were you speeding? Uh, you know, you just throw out some lame excuse out there and, and there it is. That, that's Adam. Who told you you're naked? Uh, have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? It's like, Oh, dang it. Verse 12, the man said, here's a second excuse, love this, the woman whom you gave to be with me, <laughs> it's a crazy dude, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. He says, it's not my fault, it's that woman you gave me, it's, it's your fault. It's like, since the last time you were here, things really went downhill, okay? I mean, she's wearing clothes, she gave me bad food to eat. You know, personally, God, I, I think I need woman 2.0 because the beta version just is garbage and we need to work on the second version. This is what a lot of guys are like, though. They're like, blaming the woman, blaming the woman, oh, I married the wrong woman, married the wrong, oh, I get a divorce, married another, oh, married the wrong woman again, married another woman, married the wrong woman again. Seriously, maybe you're the wrong dude. Okay, maybe you're the wrong guy because what happens is many guys, they they don't nurture and care. They ignore their wife. Everything falls apart and then they blame her. Oh, it's your fault. A good husband is called to step into that mess and love and nurture even when it's hard. Even when you don't get anything back, you constantly love and nurture. And eventually it will bring that relationship around. But you are called to go first. See, good husbands and wives were always meant to do life together. Here you see Adam keeping his wife away, pointing out all of her flaws, points out none of his own. He doesn't say, I let Satan deceive my wife. I let a talking snake have more authority in my family than, than what you called me to. He is trying to send God after his wife. Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The, ser- the serpent deceived me and I ate. You know what? The woman's honest. She's the only honest person in this whole narrative right there. I mean, Paul says in the New Testament, she thought she was helping. And so what God does now, I think God is angry, but God is righteous and his anger is not like us. And so God starts to set things right. And he does this by giving a curse and some promises. So he starts with the serpent in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this cursed in the narrative, the only one that's cursed is the serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is important because it tells you that Satan is our enemy. See, God's God. Nobody stands up to him. So Satan is our enemy. We must remember that. He shall bruise your head, meaning when Jesus comes, he's going to crush Satan. But in the meantime, and you shall bruise his heel, meaning he will wound Jesus by hurting his people. Now, 
theologians call this the Proto-Evangelion. This is the preaching of the first gospel, and it's spoken by God. The last time in Scripture that the gospel is spoken is Revelation 14, 6, and it's spoken by an angel. This is to show us that you and I are meant to be people who speak and preach the gospel. Now, some people say, well, I just never need to talk about it. I'll just live my life. Great. Live your life in such a way that you glorify God, but you need to talk about it. Other people hand out tracts, and they're talking about it all the time, but they live like total morons and don't show that they love God by their life. So my first thing is, stop handing out tracts, okay? You're just crazy when you do it. Secondly, tell people about Jesus, but live your life so they see who he is by how you live. That is preaching the gospel by word and deed together, hand in hand. So God now comes to the woman, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Thank you, Eve. Appreciate it very much. Your desire shall be for your husband. I was like, I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to slap her in the face. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the promises that God gives to the woman are related to the domains that God placed underneath her. So the woman, first and foremost, was created out of the side of man to be equals with him. Genesis 128 tells you this. I've, we've talked about this like the last four or five weeks now. Equals, equals, equals. Throughout the scriptures, you are told that God created men and women to be equals. Christianity is the only thing that teaches you this. From creation, equals. Secondly, she used to be a mother of fruitful children. Thirdly, the woman was made to be a helper to her husband in creating a God-glorifying culture. Genesis 2.18, 2.20 tells us this. And so people who think that the Bible says that, that, oh, the Bible just wants women weak and helpless, they don't know their Bible. See, God is also called our helper. The Holy Spirit is called our helper. There's no denigration in this term helper. Nobody says, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit. That's that weak, helpless, fruitless member of the Godhead. No, we don't say things like that because nothing gets done without the Spirit of God. You know, even today, studies still show that women usually find fulfillment in careers that are helpful. They gain satisfaction from helping people. Teachers, nursing, daycare, even airline attendants, mothers taking care of their children. The woman was also lived as a daughter of God, her father, and she was to be a holy lover because what was taken out of man was reunited with the man. But Eve believes the lie. It would be better for you to do this on your own, be separated from God and the man. So she hides from God, becomes independent. She gets to determine her own life. But independence is not always good. Her sin is what made her independent. And it was promised by God that Eve and all of her daughters throughout history would struggle with contentment in their role with their husbands. And what has happened is now, we, in the present day, we have a conflict that's called feminism, and we have this whole thing as a gender war. And men and women are now fighting each other. Our enemy is the serpent, and we are supposed to fight him, and he is so smart, he has got us fighting each other all the time. We're equal. Of course we're equal. Read the scriptures. You're equal. Why in the world are we fighting each other all the time? A lot of women now just have a high discontent with their high calling that God has given them in their lives. Many times today, we're no, she's no longer trying to help. You know, I believe, personally, we get feminism because Adam is a coward. And women have a hard time trusting a guy. Because I'll tell you today, honestly, we know the two main things that bring women the most pain are children and men. All right? I understand that a lot. But this leads to a propensity for feminism, where they just want to make decisions all the time. Well, I won't talk to you. I won't, I won't consult you. We're just going to do it, period, the way, the way I want. We know Eve felt this way. Her husband was an idiot. But yet Eve was also deceived. This is why the man and the woman were meant to do this together. Because on our own, we are not good. We've got to stop fighting each other and fight the battle we are called to fight. 
And today, a lot of times, even in Christian circles, this, this happens where, where women are like, oh, yeah, I want my husband to lead, but they start to nag. Lead, 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 lead. Lead this way. Lead, lead. Oh, lead the way I tell you. Not like that. Lead like this. Lead, lead, lead. And it's like, <gasps> you know, sometimes, they'll, you know, they get them to put their, their foot down, their hands on the hips, like he's one of the kids. Oh, what did I tell you to do? You know, that, that kind of thing. Some women, they cry a lot. They manipulate through tears. Don't get all emotional. You just prove my point, all right? So just, you know. Some women, and this is true, marry a dumb guy. They marry some guy. He's a nice guy, mama's boy. Oh, you did so good. Star on the fridge. Good for you. A, a, lot, a lot of them will marry a guy they can control. Because they think that's what they want. I, anytime in my office I get a couple like this that I'm doing premarital counseling for, I warn them what is going to happen in this relationship. Because it always comes back to bite these women in the butt. They may think this is what they want, but the truth is women who get this way are not happy. Eventually what happens is they want their husbands to inspire safety and courage and truth. They want strong, courageous guys who know their Bibles. That's what they want. And yet they start here thinking that the guy's going to become this and they marry not the guy that they really want in the end and it just becomes a big mess. I mean, a lot of women will marry the chauvinistic, rude, dope down little boy who can pound 15 beers and still claim he can drive his car, right? They'll marry that guy. Guys, I tell you, when, I, all, when you marry a girl, you don't want to marry your mommy. You want to marry a woman. Ladies, when you marry a guy, you want it to be a man, not a little boy. Lastly, God comes in the man. Verse 17 gets a little painful. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, a lot of crazy people take this out of context. See, I don't have to listen to you. God says so. Okay, that's not what it means. That is not what it means. Literally in the Hebrew text, it means you have heeded the voice of your wife over the truth of God. So when it comes down to either God's truth or her sin, you follow God's truth. Even if it causes a fight, you follow God's truth. And I've eaten of the tree which I command you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat its bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What God says is, the ground will win. You're going to be God right. The ground's going to win. And so man's promises are also related to the domains that God had placed underneath him as well. I told you this about a year and a half ago, these domains, back in the book of Esther, but we're going to revisit that just so you understand this. Uh, God created men, number one, to be cultivators. Cultivators. God created men to cultivate the untamed land into a garden after the prototype of, of Eden. You see this in Genesis 2, 5 through 8, Genesis 2, 15, that men were created for work and for challenge and competition and pioneering new frontiers. Masculinity is cultivated in men when they cultivate things to their optimal abilities. And this could be a myriad of things. This could be still garden at your house in your backyard or maybe you're a gardener you know whatever maybe you're like a bodybuilder you're cultivating your body maybe it's your soul and your mind maybe it's your finances maybe it's maybe it's your kids your your wife maybe you're into software or making machines or something i, I don't know whatever it is bigger better upgrade that's always like man's mantra a lot of women are like yeah i know you know bigger better upgrade we need they have a new tv it's an inch bigger than mine well, i need to get that one you know because it's bigger and it's better for some reason. The tech advances come about usually 99% because men want bigger, better upgrade. Machine advances, like, like engines, like cars, want to go faster, bigger, better upgrade. It's usually men that do that. Men were meant to become tough and resilient and disciplined because they are cultivators. It's ingrained into who we are. And if a man gets bored or he doesn't love God, he begins to cultivate sin. 
And because of Adam's sin, the ground itself was cursed. And men now have opposition in their efforts to cultivate and rule over the dominion that God places underneath us. Why does God do this? Because he loves the man. That's why he does it. It is grace that a things under a man's stewardship rebel against him, just like man rebels against God. And the gospel begins to make a whole lot more sense as we begin to desire more and more grace. Everything you do will be hard. Everything is a fixer upser. You're never going to get out of your bills. And God says, you're welcome. I was talking in, in staff this week about, I got this, anybody ever watch Caddyshack? Can you see Caddyshack? Bill Murray, Cinderella story. Right? Okay. I got this gopher in my backyard. Totally reminds me of Caddyshack because I cannot kill this thing for the life of me. And I, I even have a guy. I paid a guy to come out and kill my gopher, and he can't kill this gopher. It's like I come out like, boom, pile of dirt. My dog's all, I can dig in that. You know, it's, it just, it's driving me crazy, this, this gopher. And so when you come for baptisms, there's going to be like patches where the weeds are dead and where the gophers come through. So don't sit in the mud. Sorry. I don't know what else to tell you. And, and so I look at it, and I'm talking about this in staff. And, I go, and I'm like, why? And Mikey goes, you know why? And I said, why? And he goes, because God loves you. There you go. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace. All right. Uh, secondly, men were meant to be warriors. Warriors. God created men to rule on his behalf, and therefore man's enemies are to be the same enemies that God has as enemies. When Satan attacks, the man is supposed to fight him. And just many times, just like Adam stands there in the garden where his wife is attacked, most men will stand by and not fight and just go along with the crowd in our culture today. But see, God gives men testosterone in abundance. Men are created for battle and competition and suffering and even death like our King Jesus as we fight evil, defend truth and justice, protect the weak and the vulnerable. I mean, in a sense, God has made you a tiny little superhero and you're to, you know, it's truth and justice and, and the rightness, you know. You're supposedly supposed to protect women and children. Proverbs 31, 2 Corinthians 10, Ephesians 6, 1 Timothy 1 all tell us this. It's why you watch movies and the bad guy getting pummeled. You're like, yeah! An old western show, you know, and it's like you want the good guy to pull and, and win, even if Han shot first. It's all okay. It's all okay. Star Wars geek, sorry, whatever. You know. The problem is if men don't realize how God made them, they become a warrior towards women and a wuss towards the thing they're supposed to fight. And we're to be tender towards women around us and fight the things we are supposed to fight. Lastly, men are meant to be sages. Uh, this means teacher. This means, guys, you need to know your Bible. Again, you don't need to be a Bible scholar, all right? Uh, just start reading the scriptures every day. Not the whole, it's like, I'm going to read my Bible in a year. You know, that's really hard to do if you haven't, because you'll hit like Genesis, woo, Exodus, halfway through, uh, Leviticus, you just give up, all right? Because this is what happens. It, reading the scriptures, it's not how much you get through, it's how much gets into you. And so read smaller sections and take it and think about that during the day. I believe God created men to receive knowledge and wisdom and teach that to others, especially their wives and children. Good dads will teach a lot by the way they live their lives, by the words that they use. See, Adam, you see, doesn't pass it on. He's given direction in Genesis 2.9, 2.16-18, that men are created to receive this knowledge and pass it on, but Adam didn't do that. In the book of Proverbs, it reminds us that if boys don't get wisdom from their fathers, they will get it from other men. And they're probably getting lies from other men. Masculinity is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. What so many men do with it is bad. In 1 John 2, 14, it says, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. See, this is strength done in wisdom, 
honoring who God is. That's what God calls his people to be. So let me wrap this up for you real quick. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. And if you weren't here the week, we talked about this. In naming something, it shows Adam is taking responsibility and stewardship to care for her. So he, in this state, he again promises to take care of her, which is really good because what it shows you in the text is Adam actually learned something. He learned something. Because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So are we, are we now to be you know, clothed or naked? Clothed. All right. Keep them on. It's okay. Better than fig leaves. We're good. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. This whole thing, man didn't need to know anything but the good that God had laid out for him. If you're a parent and you have kids, you know there are some things that you have done in your life that you hope your kids never have to experience. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is also much grace for us because God gave us the opportunity to live forever and we blew it. And so God guards this tree because if we get to that tree, we eat that fruit, live forever, we live forever separated from him. And that's not what God intends for his people. So let me round this out for you. Now, why does God hand out promises of toil and pain because of our sin? It's like I said, because God loves us. That's very important to understand. See, the ground fights men because it reminds us of how we fight God. For women as mothers and helpers and daughters and lovers, why is that hard? Because God loves you and he wants you to understand hope and surrender. Because given the choice, we would all do it again. We'd all sin and fall. Because we all think that God's keeping us from the thing that we really want and that we know better than what God knows. I mean, we choose the fruit every single day. Because we think we know better than God knows. You know, should I, should I drink that? Should I sleep with them? Should I flip them off? Should I still think they're all a bunch of idiots? Or, or whatever. Whatever it is, we all have placed ourselves above God. We have all sinned. Our shame, just like for Adam and Eve, stands open just like we were naked. But the beauty of the issue in the scriptures and this idea of headship that I spoke about is that God calls to the man. God comes into the garden and he makes some promises. The promise he makes is Jesus. See, God comes walking into the garden in the cool of the day. Usually when you see God walking on the earth, most scholars believe it's God the Son, the Word, the Logos, who would become Jesus. So this would mean that the very first gospel that was spoken was spoken by Jesus about himself. Man sins, man falls. Jesus comes in, he promises, I'm going to send myself to redeem and to save you. That is an issue of headship, that Jesus takes headship and responsibility for the human race. Ephesians 4.15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. First, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Jesus, as the church's groom, took on headship responsibility for the human race. He fixes the messes that we got ourselves into. In Romans 5, 8 through 11, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sought us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Who takes headship and responsibility for us? Jesus. Jesus. God goes looking for Adam in the garden, just like God comes looking for us every single day. 
God took on flesh to bring us home. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is metaphorically called the second Adam, the one who brings life instead of death. And like Adam renames his wife here in the text, Jesus tells us in the New Testament, he comes and he makes us new through the power and the grace of his love. 2 Corinthians 2.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So you and I, we don't need to believe lies. We can actually know the scriptures. We can live in truth. We can have a hope in this God that was and is and has always been seeking us. And see, if you are someone who has never believed or understood what this is, the question is, will you trust him with your life? That he took headship and responsibility for you and I to fix all the messes that we have made and to call us home. See, that is the beauty of the gospel, that our God is that good, that we are that bad, and yet our God is that good, to call us and bring us home in his grace and his love. This is the reason why every single week we, we do communion. We don't like stop when we can say, oh, we don't feel like it. We do it every week because we want people to understand that it is grace that has saved us. This table represents the headship and responsibility that God took for the human race. And so you break that cracker like his body was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine and the grape juice representing his blood that was shed for you and I. So that we, as his people, understand what he went through to save us. And that as our great God, he stands over and above and loves us and reconciles us and calls us home. It is great grace. The band will come up. Do a couple songs. And as they do, we invite you to take communion. Uh, We invite you to sing these songs. All throughout the scriptures, what you see is that uh, God, the most of the times, I think three quarters of the time when God speaks in scripture, it's song. It's poetry. Man, actually, in scripture, doesn't even speak words until after the fall. Before the fall, the words that he speaks are in song. Before the fall, God speaks to man in words of poetry and song. And so it's kind of ingrained into us. And so as a response, we sing songs every single week. Because it's made, we're made that way to respond in song. If you have never understood this whole idea of headship and responsibility and that God saves you and loves you, and, and you want to know more about that, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And they would love to talk to you about that, explain that to you, pray with you, introduce you to who Jesus Christ is, our great God who has saved us. Uh, there's some offering boxes on the side and one on the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then simply part of our worship. So we do give you the opportunity every single week. You know, we don't want you to leave without the opportunity to give because God gave. We don't pass a plate. Again, it's a response. And then there's some uh, food and stuff in the back still, right? Yeah. Every service, I ask Ryan to see if make sure you ate it or not. You know, I point out Ryan's sin and not my own. <laughs> <laughs> I, ate the, I ate the forbidden donut hole. No? I don't know. Anyway, uh, so there's some food and stuff in the back. And again, the reason we give you food is because we want you guys to connect to each other. Right, Because God not only reconciles us to him, reconciles us to each other so that relationships can be restored again. That, that somebody, when they irritate you or hurt you, you don't have to crucify them. They don't have to climb, climb on a cross and die. Jesus died. They don't have to. He paid the price for sin so relationships can be restored again. This is the beauty of the gospel. He took responsibility for it. Okay? So let him have responsibility for it. And then join in friendships again. Our God is great and he is good. And he has saved us, most importantly, from ourselves. Because, again, given our own choice, we would always go the way of death. And yet our God saves us and restores us and brings us home because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you, as our great God, would constantly remind us of all that you have done to save your people. So that we would become humble people. 
that we wouldn't get a, a big head thinking, oh, look what God did to save me, but we would think, look what God had to do to save me. And it would cause us to live our lives in great humility before you, in great humility before others around us, and that the gospel would now be spoken in our lives by word and deed. And that sometimes when we don't have the right words to say, we can simply speak about how you have saved us, how you have sought us and you have brought us home. Because you are a God who loves the people he has created. So God, this morning, I ask that you would empty us of all the things that we have placed before you in our lives. Fill us with your spirit so we live and walk in grace. And that we would understand daily better your amazing and wonderful grace and a wonderful love. That you have broken every chain that holds us down and you have set us free so that we can truly be who you originally made us to be. Your people, redeemed, restored, loved. And have us live that in front of others so they can also see the great grace that you have given to your people. Thank you for being a God who loves us the way that you do. Amen.